0: Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey, everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. Today, the embarrassment of the elites, Uh, whether it's Hunter Biden, the COVID lab theory, uh, or the influence and importance of the mainstream media. Our elites have gotten it wrong time and time again, as they've tried to stifle us, shut us up, embarrass us, it's wound up coming back to haunt them. And they're being exposed now in a really important, profound way. That's sort of the theme of where we're going with today's show and with today's guests. Uh, so we're going to kick it off with a guy named Sarab Amari. He writes for the New York Post, and he's a deep thinker this is a guy who's got a new book out, but he's been thinking about the conservative movement and where we are in society for a while now and was really uh, behind a lot of the Hunter Biden um, pushing and arguing and standing up for his paper saying they should not have been silenced on that. And it turns out he was 100% right. Where's his apology? Not not forthcoming. We'll get into his new book and what he thinks about The latest pushback on critical race theory by a Carmel mom, the latest racist invited to speak on the campus of Yale about how she has fantasies of killing white people, (laughs) and the media yawn in response, Um, and so on. And then we're going to bring on Crystal and Sagar back. Crystal Ball, Sagar and Jetty, who have a new adventure. They've decided to branch out. They've they're leaving the hill. They're going independent. Uh, because they wanted to live their values. You know, they've been talking about the collapse of mainstream media and they didn't want corporate backers. They wanted to be on their own. So what do they think about where we are today in terms of media coverage and just the messaging, the control of these mighty messengers uh, over the rest of us? And then my pal Dan Abrams is back. He runs Abrams Media and the website Mediaite, which I recommend to everybody. And uh, he's here for a couple of reasons. Number one, we're going to talk about the horrific performance by the media when it comes to these issues, in particular, the COVID lab leak theory. But number two, he's written a very cool new book on Jack Ruby, on, on the assassination by Jack Ruby. He's the guy who killed Oswald after Oswald killed JFK. Remember? And so he's taken a deep dive into that case to figure out what really happened. Was Jack Ruby working for the mob or or Castro or somebody else? And this is kind of his thing. He's got a series on interesting legal cases that have been, I don't know, ignored or forgotten. The latest is called Kennedy's Avenger. And I think you'll find the discussion really interesting. So, packed show for you today. So we're gonna kick things off with Sarab Amari in one second. He's the one who has just authored this book, which is tearing it up. He was talking about it with Tucker. Really good discussion. It's called The Unbroken Thread. Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. He's up in 60 seconds. Don't go away. So Rob, thank you so much for being here.
1: Megan, thank you for having me.
0: I'm excited for this conversation. I'm a big fan of your writings and the, your, the way you think and your boldness in expressing opinions that you know, even quote, your side won't like. Um, so I, I admire you as a disruptor. And I let me start with the thing. I don't really I don't have huge interest any longer in the fight with David French, but I did at the time. And let me tell you something. You changed my mind because I'd always liked David French National Review. He's sort of, you know, I don't know. He says people accuse me of being a squish, but he's, you know, I don't people can make up their own minds. But you were making really important points about how his future of conservatism is not the future of con- conservatism and that every battle is going to be lost if if we follow sort of if, if the right follows the, the David French approach. And I was like, oh, so mean. So Rob, so mean. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the more I read what you wrote, the more I was like, you know what? He's right. He's he's right. Can you just encapsulate what the difference was there and why you felt so strongly about how the right needs to be fighting these cultural battles. I guess
1: the the main difference is whether or not your commitment as a political movement is to mere procedure, um, uh, you know, rights, uh, norms, and so on and so forth, or whether you have a substantive vision of what society should look like and whether you recognize that whether you like it or not, the other side has a substantive vision that they plan to enshrine. It's a very destructive one, as we've seen with things like critical race theory or the aggressions of gender ideology, where we're asked to affirm things that we just know know, are not true. Um, Not only going against the teachings of the the Bible, but also the teachings of of genetics and what we know about um, the immutability of sex and so on. They're intent on enshrining that vision in the public square. And that will always happen. Some orthodoxy or other will always dominate our public square. Um, So the question is, is the right prepared also to, not just the right even, I want to say, but um, sane Americans are prepared to defend certain truths in the public square and and stand for them, not just saying, well, I want to have my view and you have yours, because that just doesn't work, you know? has never worked in history always there's some orthodoxy that reigns and the the one we face is particularly um, Not only out of tune with reality, but incredibly vicious and you know, kind of quasi totalitarian And so it needs you have to meet their quote-unquote creed with your own creed Which, you know, I argue is that kind of like our Judeo-Christian heritage the classical heritage, the Greco-Roman teachings of of of, of philosophy—that that's what we have. And um, and by the way, it, you know, in in doing so, we don't do away with rights or procedures; those are important. But our approach to the things that David French cares about has to be ordered to some higher purpose or some vision of what what, what do we want as a conservative movement for American society? What, which what's important to us? Family faith? Um, uh, uh, what do we want our communities to look like? And to stand for those and not just say, well, we'll just agree to disagree. I mean, that's just that's just mm. not working.
0: Is the battle still on or has the other side won?
1: Oh, I, there's, I mean, there's there's no definitive victory in all of these things. I would say that um, we have to begin from the point of view um, that, that our worldview, and when I say our, I mean Again, I I hesitate to use conservative because it doesn't quite capture what I'm getting at. But um, the side of sanity has been uh, swept out of nearly all the major institutions of American life. Um, This has become especially clear over the past few years where a lot of, again, like national review type conservatives became, became complacent because they thought, well, at least we have... Business is on our side, and that's economic reality, and so that that won't go crazy woke um, when in fact we see that now corporate America is one of the major drivers it's the tip of the sphere of the vocification of American society um, and so we used to think of it oh that's just the crazy stuff in academia it's among a fringe of professors no it's it's swept far beyond that and um so I think that recognition that m- uh, we don't have anyone on our side except, I would hope, the good sense of the majority of American people who, who don't want critical race theory. That doesn't mean that they're racist. They just don't want this perverse ideology uh, masquerading as anti-racism to be uh, you know, imposed on their children. They don't want um, the insanity of having their daughters uh, compete in sports against biological males and so on and so forth we have to recognize that except for the good sense of the american people we don't have any institutional power and that's kind of liberating in some ways then you think okay well here we are but at least that means you're not laboring under any illusion that um mm. the right has any kind of cultural pur- purchase anymore we really don't
0: that's exactly right it's i've i've said this many times but it's it's just better to know what reality is right the reality mm-hmm. yesterday is the same as it is today. But perhaps you've received new information about where people really stand. We know the media has been unmasked in a way that was really important, corporate America to sports and so on. I don't think even just four years ago, they were understood in that way. And that's one great gift of the Trump administration. You know, the, the four years under Trump was, yes, he was a destroyer of many things that needed to be destroyed. Like, like the mask that was on the media on a place like CNN, for example, that's just I mean you can go so much bigger, it's so much bigger than cable news now and and so that's good. We know where we stand, and it's not just conservatives. you know I talk to you're you're in New York like I am, and I talk to my liberal friends all the time, friends who I have who on their texts, will describe themselves to me with a little fire I- emoji, liberal, <laughs> right like that's how they describe themselves, who are on the side of you and of me when it comes to these issues, because they also want to fight back against the insanity. They don't want drag queen story hour. They don't want bullying of trans people. They want kindness and equal rights and understanding, but they do not want a drag queen, whatever, showing up at their kindergartens, you know, day of learning his colors and prancing around in a tutu. If
1: you've seen footage from drag queen story hour, and I really, I don't want to be forever to, to to the end of my days be associated with my opposition to drag queen story hour but it's <laughs> it's typically like latex you know high heels you know it's not oh it's not Lord. tutus you know it's this bizarre kind of fetishistic uh vision which you know i i should say i live in midtown manhattan and i literally live right above a uh <laughs> a drag bar which like you, you know you i do and it just it's midtown east and and it's a place where people like typically go for their bridal uh, kind of, all uh, oh, right, you know, parties or whatever, and and I don't mind it at all because I I, I recognize that that's a place. It's always kind of been part of New York culture. It doesn't have this element of, but let's normative, you know, make this normative for children and and encourage this as a worldview or a way of being in the world it's you know it's a subculture in a way it has all its charm in being a subculture it becomes so true you know oppressive when it's you know there's this attempt to make it uh impose it on kids which is just obviously perverse
0: no you're so right there was i used to go to this um Again, I, is the term transvest? Yes, just drag queen. Anyway, I think transvest is Chicago- okay.
1: It's okay. Yeah, okay. It's, I mean, men who dress up, they're often straight men who just like to dress up as, as women. It's not quite the same exactly. as
0: transgender. Yeah. It's not to be confused with transgender, which is, you know, you actually identify as a different gender. But like RuPaul, that's not RuPaul. RuPaul is a man who likes to dress up as a woman. Um, but they had a dra- uh, like a drag bar there that was so fun. We used to go to it all the time and you'd be you'd leave very confused. I mean, it was all the men who would go would be very confused. These were amazingly attractive, you know, <laughs> people who appeared as women, but weren't. And you knew that at some level. And yet your eyes belied what your brain knew. Um, anyway, fine for adults and fun. And like you say, subculture and it's fun to sort of stick a toe into that world, even as, you know, mainstream people. But yeah, I don't want it in front of my six year old. And and I do think you tell me what you think, but I do think more and more this year. So even when I launched the podcast, it was like the last week of September. And now here we are in June. I've seen a massive shift in people getting ready to push back against these cultural insanities. I, I see. I
1: mean, especially again, not to make it this a New York podcast, but like you, I know lots of liberal parents who are Believe it or not, friends with notorious reactionary Sarah Pomari. And um, um, they come they come up to me and say, you know, I'm, I'm really worried about the race stuff at my kids' private school. And they're paying, you know, $50,000, $60,000 a year for these Ivy feeder schools like Bre- Brearley and Dalton. And they have to attend, for example, these Zoom meetings where the parents and their children have to unpack their biases and privileges as, as, as white people or as Asians, because um, the Asians are often lumped in and they have to keep their cameras on. So to show that they're kind of really plugged in and, um you oh, know, really, at least, you're not allowed yeah. to turn
0: the camera off.
1: No, you're not allowed. At least as some of at, at this couple, we know who, who, who they have older children and their older children attend a couple of these different schools. They tell me that they ha- you have to keep your zoom on to show that you're into the conversation but at any rate they, they they come up to me and privately kind of whisper that um you know i don't i don't like this why well, I, I want my kid to learn i don't want my kid to just endlessly solipsistically meditate on his or her own you know identity and sexuality and race and so forth i want him to like learn about the napoleonic wars and poetry and homer or whatever and, and so that's good i mean i just worry that a lot of elite parents, though, will just, they'll, they'll say that privately to me, the one kind of cons- out conservative that they know. But um, at the end of the day, they want their kid to go to Columbia or whatever. So they'll bite the bullet. Yes. And so we no, have I to saw have some kind of. You had a piece
0: of- in the New York Post. And, and I was like, this is a, another good point. Talking about how your liberal friends pour out their anguish to you on fears of these woke radicals and that you're wearying of the job because they're kind of part of the problem. As much as we appreciate them being on the side of sanity, if it's just secret, it does us no good. That that you you wrote they are prepared to tolerate woke rule if it means passing on their elite status to their progeny. And I do think one of the reasons why, you know, we pulled our kids from these schools pretty quickly once I realized what was going on was I I do not have any elite academic status that i need to pass on and i don't care if they go to harvard at all in fact i'm really starting to think that's the last place i want them to go i don't i have no idea where they should go but someplace that won't indoctrinate them is my hope or you know at least someplace where the push isn't so strong it's going to overcome the k through 12 years that my husband and i have spent trying to counter program against that but you're right Mm -hmm. most people here in new york they have beautiful academic pedigrees and not just in new york and all the big cities. And so, yeah, they, they if they don't like it, they go along with it. And some of them like it, and some of them like. My husband just had lunch with a friend who was like, eh, "It'll pass. Eh, it's not that big a thing." And and you know, Doug and I are like, "No, no, no! It's a big thing." Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean these these types of movements, um, you know, if you look at any kind of uh, historical perspective. Uh, they don't, um, they don't pass, uh, or they pass a- after having left in their wake just that massive
0: ruin. (laughs) Right. Ruination and despair. Right. Exactly. So one good thing, and it always comes out of, you know, places where you have more salt to the earth people that I saw over the weekend was this woman out of Carmel, New York. I don't know if you saw this now, please forgive me because we cut like a three minute clip of this woman because I'm in love with her. I'm not in love with this woman. And she here's the scene. Okay, she showed up at her school board meeting. And this woman had a few words to share with the school board, which was pushing an agenda that was totally anti-cop, pro-BLM, pro-socialism and communism, according to her. She kept saying she had proof. They kept trying to shut her up. She wouldn't shut up. She actually said, I'm, I'm going to be your worst nightmare. And I just, this, ladies and gentlemen, this is how
2: it's done. All right, listen to her. My message to this district and the members of the Board of Ed. Stop indoctrinating our children. Stop teaching our children to hate the police. Stop teaching our children that if they don't agree with the LGBT community, that they're homophobic. You have no idea each child's life. Why am I not allowed when they purposely themselves expose themselves on social media talking about calling for the death of a former president, or saying that any child that doesn't believe in Black Lives Matter should be canceled out. Is this what my tax dollars is paying for? You're teaching my children and other children that if they believe in God Almighty, they're part of a cult. Why can't we let the public know that you're teaching our children to go out and murder our police officers? Do you want the proof? I have the proof. Is that what scares you, the proof? That a parent actually standing up against all of you? Is that what scares you, to call out the names of these people? You work for me. I don't work for you. We are entrusting our children to you. We teach our children morals, values, when they grow up to commit crimes and end up in prison and kill a police officer. It's our fault? No, it's your fault. You're emotionally abusing our children and mentally abusing them. You're demoralizing them by teaching them communist values. This is still America, ma'am. And as long as I'm standing here on this good ground earth of God, I will fight. And I'm not. this is not the last of me you will see. I'm retired, I have nothing else better to do. We can do it peacefully or we can take it to the highest courts because you know and I know I'm not the only parent fighting us all across America right now, schools are trying to poison our children's minds. Do you know who makes up the majority of this district? Children from police officers' families. Blues, back the blue children. Do you know what these children feel like when they come home? Have you spoken to them? No, you're silencing them. This whole cancel culture, you're silencing the children. Where are their rights? They have no rights. Because if they don't believe in the indoctrination, the demonic, twisted, sneaky, vile acts and and, and, and education, if you call it that, that you're teaching our children, they don't agree with that. They're either homophobic, they're part of a cult, they, 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 they're racist. What, what's, what's racist? Who defines racist? Why? Because I'm, do you know what race I am? Do you? You don't. You don't even have a, an idea. I could be black. I could be white. I could be Asian. You don't know. Who are you to determine that? Who is anyone to determine that? You know what? Children in the school system, children, like other children, they don't look at color. Black and ch- black and white children, Hispanic children, you know why they get along? Because they don't look at each other's color. So you're the racist, not them, not us. You're judging and dividing. You're causing segregation. I have a problem when teachers are passing out flyers, recruiting children to go to to the courthouse, to protest Black Lives Matters, when you have people sitting with, with, with signs that says all cops are bastards. Really? All cops are bastards? No, I think you people are. The chair you're sitting on, we pay for it. The lights that are on, we pay for it. We pay for everything. You want to silence me because I spoke the truth. I spoke the truth. This indoctrination and hatred towards our police officers, this systematic racism and cancel culture is going to end. You came to the wrong school district to do this, okay?
3: Yes!
0: Her name is Tatiana Ibrahim. Um, Carmel, New York is just north of New York city. It's in Putnam County, which is more blue collar, more working class. And as she says, a lot of cops as, as the parent in those families there. And she stood up for a reason. There was a little clip of it in there, Sora, but th- there was the one moment where the, she's like, I pay your salary. And somebody on the border's like, actually, this is a volunteer position. We don't get paid. She goes, you heard who's paying for that chair? Who do you think's pay for the electricity? Who's paying for this room? I'm in love with her. That's how it's done. You don't have to. We pulled our kids. You don't have to. You can. You can go to the board of Edge of ed meeting and unleash like Tatiana and stand up against this indoctrination, like she did.
1: That was so rousing, um, Megan. And as you played that, I was uh, kind of pumping my fist. Um, <laughs> in my own room, alone, um, it was terrific, <laughs> and you know, it just it goes to show where where the future lies. If there's a political movement that wants to be um, successful, I think where it lies is a combination. Some, some basically, something that speaks to Tatiana. What is what does someone like Tatiana want? She wants she wants her kids to uh, attend school and and be and be uh, not be indoctrinated, but to be taught actual knowledge that may be useful to him or her, uh, you know, in, in life. They they want law and order because we know what happens when law and order break down. We saw the riots over the summer um, and the fact that so many uh, politicians cheered it. Uh, and they want a kind of decent economic order. That doesn't mean they want socialism. That doesn't mean they want ultra capitalism, but a decent economic the way that President Trump However, inchoately spake, spoke to these kind of economic anxieties where, you know, taken all together, this combination of cultural wokeism and, and a, an economy that works really, really well for elites um, and and mm-hmm. leaves a lot of people in the working middle behind, that's not worked out well. And so mm-hmm. if, if any movement of, of whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, although increasingly I think it's likely to come from from uh, on the Republican side of things that can just address that will capture the middle. What's very insidious about our kind of blob of corporate ac- academic and media power that rules us is they, are, they present really, really extreme positions, really, really kind of uh, positions that are Unpalatable to the vast, vast majority of people of all races, like defunding the police, uh, like teaching gender ideology to little kids, uh, like uh, uh, you know, kind of pursuing climate change policies that make gas really expensive and can drive up consumer prices and so forth. But they present it all as the mainstream, and then the, the the fringe becomes the far right or the far left, whoever doesn't quite fit into that, even though it's what where the majority of Americans are on these issues. So if you could just capture that and say, no, 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 you're the extremist, Mr. Board Member, Education Board Member in Carmel, New York, you're the extremist, uh, you know, whoever blue check type, who says that there's, you know, 157 genders, that's insane. Um, You can easily win. So we just need politicians to now, people who are willing to use power responsibly to give a voice to Tatiana's and then hopefully people like her actually going in to to take seats on school boards to take seats on yes. um, you know this local district kind of governing bodies and so forth
0: that's part of the answer is grassroots get on the boards you, you can't just yell at the boards you got to get on the boards we have to run the boards we have to make sure that this is stopped at the, you know it, when it's a seedling as opposed to when it's already spread in in the schools and I will say I mean I will confess to you um, my brother is a police officer he's a lieutenant and I wrote letters to all of my schools when this whole thing started breaking, saying. Just so you know, my children have an uncle who is a decorated police officer, and I do not want him or his brethren to be demonized in any classroom in which my child sits. You owe a responsibility. You have a responsibility. You owe a duty to my child to make sure that you are not condemning wide swaths of people based on the actions of this one man who were covering Derek Chauvin. Um, uh, and so you do have to get involved i I don't like giving a hard time to the head of school or to the teachers. I like them, you know, in my schools i I care about them, but it's it's about more than just your personal relationships it's 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 about principle. um but to your point about they're the extremists, I've been thinking about Amy Chua, you know, her tiger mom, mm-hmm. Yale law school professor, totally beloved on Yale uh, on the campus. she the students are lining up to get into her class every year, and she's They've been coming after her this year, of course. And they're pretending it's because she had students at her house and they had drinks. They basically slapped her husband with some BS. It was sort of a me too situation, but it wasn't. He didn't do anything. It was basically he complimented some girl in her outfit and suddenly they treated him like he was Harvey Weinstein. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We've lost our minds. Anyway, as a result, I guess they agreed not to have students to the house drinking The school was like, oh, you did? She said, actually, no, I had young Asian women over who were scared about the the trend of violence against young Asian uh, people. The point is Yale's coming for her. And the real reason is she supported Brett Kavanaugh. And I don't I know, Amy, I don't know whether she's a Democrat or a Republican. I have no idea. But she knew Brett Kavanaugh and she respected his legal work and she did not see the case that was being made against him. She she had a lot of experience with sending clerks to him who had very positive experiences, blah, blah, blah. She's never been forgiven for that. Okay, so that's Yale. The same Yale. Okay, now it's not the law school, but over at the med school, uh, the Yale School of Medicine's Child Study Center, Child Study Center, invited a lunatic two months ago. Not even this is April 2021 uh, to speak to the young doctors there. And the woman's name, as it turns out, the woman who spoke is a doctor. She's a psychiatrist. Dr. Aruna Kilanani. She previously taught at Cornell, Columbia, and NYU. Yet another reason not to send your kids there. Um, and, and this doctor got up in front of her audience for almost an hour and gave a lecture entitled The Psychopathic Problem of the White Mind. We know about this because Katie Herzog, again, writing for Barry Weiss's Substack, which has turned out to be a treasure trove. Uh, was sent a, a copy of the audio recording. And listen to what, so Amy Chua, beloved, brilliant. She's a problem. But this lunatic can get up in front of the young doctors of America, the future doctors, and say as follows. Listen.
3: This is the cost of talking to white people at all. The cost of your own life is a you dry. There are no good apples, okay? White people make my blood boil. I a fantasies of loading a revolver into the head of any white person that got in my way, garing their body and wiping my bloody
4: hands
1: as I walked away relatively differently.
3: With a bounce in my step, like I did
2: the world of fucking favor. We keep forgetting that directly talking about race the a waste of our breath. We are asking a demented, violent predator
0: who
3: thinks that they're a saint or a superhero to accept responsibility. It ain't gonna happen. We need to remember that directly talking about race to white people is useless because we're at the wrong level of conversation. Addressing racism is that white people can see and process what we are talking about. They can't. That's why they sound demented. They don't even know they have a mask on. White people think it's their
1: actual face. We need to get to know them out.
0: Okay, so just because that was a little garbled, just the highlights were, the cost of talking to white people is your own life. There are no good apples. White people make my blood boil. Fantasies of unloading a revolver into the head of any white person that got in my way, burying their body, wiping my bloody hands as I walked away, relatively guiltless, with a bounce in my step, like I did the world an effing favor. White people are out of their minds. They've been for a long time. Talking about race is, uh, is a waste of time. We're asking a demented, violent predator, who thinks they're a saint or a superhero, to accept responsibility. <laughs> because it came out, Yale ultimately had to apologize and say, "Oh, it's not not really consistent with our, our values." but this is where we are this person was allowed to come on campus and say all of this and had it not been leaked um you know a couple of people complained i don't know i think we'd probably get a lot more like her and she's still in private practice therapizing people right now with those messages i shudder to think of
1: uh, what her patients will, if, for example if they have cauca she has caucasian patients
0: right you might want to pat her down before your therapy session
1: look i i'm, I'm trying to understand what this ideology where it's coming from and the best account that i've been able to muster and i think a few others have, have have wised up to this as well is it's 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 an ideology to that tries to account for the fact that in this country kind of our quote-unquote meritocratic elites have done really well as i understand this woman is an immigrant or a child of immigrants and so obviously and now you know within uh, you know a short span of immigrating either her or her parents immigrating um you know she's in the has she's one entree into the highest circles of her her profession and that's it, it, you know and and, and 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 so people like her and people in her class have done very well for themselves um but they've sort of met, they have to kind of convince themselves that it's not just um that it's just their pure ability to do this. And there, it's their own kind of ability to t- test, take tests very well and get to the places that they have. And they don't owe anything to a larger society that made it possible for them to rise. And maybe there are others who haven't done well out of our current economic and, and political arrangements that you know, our, our nation is very good at kind of tapping elites and siphoning them off into coastal areas and they cluster together and they're very diverse. But there's lots of people who don't, to participate in that so how do you deal with that including the fact that these people feel left behind um do you kind of make create a more economically just society do you do you help them out do you whatever or you can kind of frame all of them the great middle of this country as this horde of horrible racists and 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 deplorables and so forth and if you frame them that way then you have as an elite you have no responsibility to to everyone else normally in, in in kind of great tradition of the West, it, there was always elites and there will always be elites. That's, that's fine, it just because human beings have different abilities. But the idea of being a, an elite was, especially even in this country, with this kind of Protestant establishment, um, was that you were, you became an elite and you then had a responsibility to everyone else. You, you The whole point of you being an, an elite was for you to serve others. But we now have an elite that kind of comp- feels completely disconnected from the rest of society believes itself to be just the pure product of meritocracy and can't explain its own rise. So it has to frame everyone else as I don't have any responsibility to them because they're horrible racists and, and they should just shut up. Or in in the, in the case of this doctor, they should literally be shot dead. Um, and so that's the best explanation I can come up with for this kind of woke ideology. And I have, again, I have it in my social circle of like, you know, uh, people who are very, very wealthy, they're immigrants like let's say from Korea or wherever, and they've embraced Black Lives Matter and defund the police. Of course, they would. They would. They They have like these apartments, they live in parts of the country, whether it's in LA or New York, where they would have private security if law and order broke down, they have every kind of private defense. It's working class people, including working class people of color who'll pay for their preferred policies like defunding the police. But I just think it's, it's a way to explain their own elite status and why they don't care about most, uh, most of the country.
0: Mm-hmm. And they've got buy-in from big tech. This has been something you've been jumping up and down about because you were, you were part of the Hunter Biden reporting and, and that story at the Post that was suppressed, that we were told couldn't air Facebook. No, it can't, it can't air Twitter. No, it can't be circulated at all. This is the same Facebook. That banned any discussion of whether COVID originated in a Wuhan lab, which it very much, I mean, honestly, like, how can you reach any other conclusion now? Um, they, they told you guys you couldn't report on Hunter. They told all of us we couldn't speak of the Wuhan lab leak theory. And they're not learning any lessons. There's no introspection there. There's no apologies.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, we we were bit by both of those stories. We were censored with our Hunter reporting. Hunter Biden reporting, which remains undisputed, neither Hunter nor his father actually disputes the authenticity of the emails. Um, the, you know, the thrust of our reporting remains unchallenged. That's right. uh, All they can say is this Russian disinformation and so forth. It
0: could be. Remember, remember Hunter said be. to CBS, it could be, could be Russian. Inter- could could be. <laughs> you don't yeah, know. Then you, had- you don't know if you left a laptop there. You don't know if you made a laptop or made those videos and did all those drugs and with the hookers and all those. Do you know whether those are yours? Because there's, you know, thousands of them. So one might look familiar
1: yes so and and you had 50 intelligence officials and again this is so discrediting to the so-called intelligence community they released the letter at the height of this saying this has all this bears all the hallmarks of russian disinformation um, again with zero evidence um so yeah we were suppressed on that count and we had a column an opinion column by steve mosher who's a great china scholar in february 2020 so kind of at the beginning of the crisis saying look it's possible, he didn't say definitively, but he said it's possible that this was a lab leak. And his reasoning was quite simple and in retrospect it seems so obvious. He said, Is it crazy that the epicenter of the virus happens to be also where this lab is located, where it's the only right. lab in virus capable of handling coronaviruses? Uh, you know, but, but Facebook censored that as well. And so, you know, and again, keep in mind we're we're talking about the New York Post, it's America's oldest. Continuously published daily newspaper. It was founded by one of the founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton. So, mm-hmm. you know these these tech firms have become a kind of the private enforcement arm of again of this elite that doesn't want to hear contrary theories. Because if you talk about what happened with China, there it calls into question their own comfortable relationship with China over decades. They made possible China's rise. They our kind of bipartisan establishment elite, opened the doors to China's rise. So the Wuhan lab theory is uncomfortable because it reminds them that China is a very irresponsible actor. Um, so how do they deal with that? Well, they don't. They just censor views that might um, come into conflict. And I think we have to be very careful now and think about the possibility that there's such a thing as, as private tyranny. Americans are very good and alert to the possibility of public tyranny, meaning government doing this or that. But we're a little bit less equipped for dealing with the prospect of large agglomerations of private power used in this way, um, kind of monopolistically, oligopolistic, oligopolistically, to to um, make our freedoms kind of hollow, render our true freedoms hollow.
0: Well, it kind of goes back to what you were talking about before, which is, yes. Process is important. Due process is really important. That too was written in there by one of those founders you mentioned. Um, but toward what end? It, we we have to keep asking that question. I mean, I would say, I I, I'm just thinking about myself. Sometimes I focus too much on process as a lawyer, but I'm also a Catholic. You know, which sort of gets me mm-hmm. to the other end. And I know you're you're I would say pretty devout because you you came to it as a convert. Right The converts are always the most devout, like my nana. Um, <laughs> but that answers I mean religion for people, even if you're not particularly religious, like me, I mean I consider myself a Catholic and I, I was raised in the Catholic Church and still believe in its tenets, um, but I wouldn't call myself devout, but anyway that that helps you answer the other questions of, okay, once we get the process set, what are we shooting for? It can't just mm-hmm. be let the ships fall where they may you You do actually need to have a a dog in the hunt, and this is I think why you wrote your book. I mean, I think this is sort of one of the, the goals, right? So the book is called The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. You're a very deep thinker. Um, I really appreciated how deep you went because it brought me there too. But that was one of your points was that faith in God has been gradually displaced in our country by faith in man and materialism and process while important, doesn't doesn't get us to the end of the questions we need to be asking ourselves. Yeah, so I wrote
1: this book for my son Max. He's um he's four years old now. He was two when I started writing it. And so I read, I started writing it pre-Corona and in some ways it became a, a prescient book of the moment as it, through circumstances beyond the book itself, namely the pandemic, but you know, my my fear for my son is as much as I'm an I'm an immigrant and I'm a grateful immigrant. I'm worried about the kind of man that our Western civilization will chisel out of my max, and I don't think again. I don't mean that he'll be become I don't know an opioid addict or he'll be you know utterly kind of dissolute. Although God forbid that's a possibility too, and one should be alert to it, but that he'll just be one of our kind of purposeless elite with no sense of moral purpose in his life. Um, Whereas he's named after this great Catholic Saint Maximilian Kolbe, who became um, canonized, who was canonized as a saint um, because he famously laid down his life for a stranger at Auschwitz. Someone else had been condemned to execution. That man cried out, Oh, but my wife and children and Saint Maximilian said, well, I'll step into his place. I'll take his uh, punishment. And so that's that's how he was murdered by the Nazis mm. and so I'm trying to tether my max to that max and that how did that max's um, uh, great act of sacrifice come about? It was because of this deeper spiritual uh, formation, this traditional formation that said that freedom isn't just you know process or isn't just having maximum choice or keeping your options open. really freedom is freedom to do what you ought to do and um if it's freedom to do what you ought to do, you can do it even under the kind of most extreme conditions. Which again, I hope never come about for my own son. But you can you can be free even in a Nazi death camp if you rest on this more solid ground of of tradition and faith. And so that's that's that was my impetus for writing the book, and I frame it around. unasked questions, questions that our age assumes have been answered because we have science or because we have technology, questions like, is God reasonable? Or how should you serve your parents? When in fact, these questions are still pertinent to full and happy life. And because I'm not a philosopher, I'm not a theologian, I'm just a journalist and, and, and storyteller. I do it through the stories of great thinkers. So I think, I hope my son and potentially the reader will come to this and they'll just encounter not being hit over the head heavily with philosophy, but ideas blended in with the lives of great thinkers like St. Augustine or Thomas Aquinas, and some surprising ones like the feminist Andrew Dworkin or Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel.
0: Well, how about the part in um, the qu- question seven, how must you serve your parents? You just reference it. Um- answered by confucius which is i mean congrats on getting that interview because that's big Uh, (laughs) and you say this quoting his philosophy here that um the the parent-child relationship is the foundation of all relationships we must put our parents needs above all else and do so with love and joy a child should spend three years mourning a parent's death and should not enjoy food music sex for that period now I mean, I love my parents, I my love I did lose my dad, but I certainly wouldn't don't want to lose my mom anytime soon, but I have a feeling she would not want me to mourn her in that particular way right, yeah, i mean so
1: and, and i I don't suggest that we should pick up literally Confucian filiality norms um, <laughs> Thank goodness. because it's for a completely different uh, civilization we're talking about twenty five hundred years ago in in ancient China, um, but there is something in the spirit of of Confucian filiality, which I think can still be useful and, and, and illuminating for us today. And that's, you know, why Confucius asked, why do you owe these things to your parents? Why are you expected under Chinese ritual to refrain from basically being happy for three years after your parents dead, after your parents die? And the reason is, why is it three years? It's because during the first three years of your life, you were incredibly helpless. And for most of us, I mean, some people are blessed. Some people are cursed with bad parents and we have to acknowledge that. But for most of us during those three years, it was our parents who just completely took care of us. You didn't have to ask your mom to feed you. You didn't have to ask your dad to take you to the doctor when you were sick. And in taking care of you you that way, they kind of nurtured your moral imagination so that when you grow up, you begin to extend your sense of duty or loyalty to an ever larger share of people, your community, your larger family and so forth. Um, and it makes you feel they made you humane in that way by taking care of you. So therefore when they die, it should be a, you know, it should be an event for you because, and that hence the three years, you're recalling your own first three years of life when you were completely helpless. Now, again, Mm -hmm. as I, I go on in the chapter and make it clear that, um, Confucian filiality norms are extreme, and um, <laughs> by our standards, and mo- most modern Chinese, you know, although they have some elements of it in their own daily life, they no longer practice, you know, the three years of mourning. But, um, but it's useful to have some sense of the, of this mysterious relationship between parents and child. You know, the way you look like Megan, or the way I look like the shape of our nose, the shape of our face our hair is literally wouldn't be possible, but for the union of these two people. So we owe them something.
0: Yeah. I do think we forget that too much, too much of the familial relationship in the West forgets that. And it's something to be admired about uh, the, the Chinese parent child relationship, the more Eastern parent um, child relationship, uh, just the, and immigrants too, a lot of immigrants who just w- willingly take care of their parents and would never offload the responsibilities.
1: We have a, 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 a filiality norm in the West. It comes from the Ten Commandments. Uh, so the Mosaic law does say honor your mother and father. And notably, it doesn't say only if they, you know, parentheses, only if they met your expectations as a parent, just like the mm-hmm. Confucian filiality norm, uh, it neither has a kind of uh, proviso for getting out if your if your parents were lousy, and that's very difficult for modern minds to wrap their head around because we're used to everything being transactional. If you know if so and so took care of me, then I'll take care of them in in later life. If so and so was good to me, then I'll be good to them. But filiality norms, both in the, the 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 Judeo-Christian version and the Confucian version, are kind of striking in that they say, no, you got to honor your mother and father.
0: Well, I also appreciated your. Chapter on death. What's good about death? I realize this this is a deeper discussion for you know a longer uh, other time. But you hit on something that I've believed and I've lived my own life by, and it's what's allowed me to take big risks and and achieve relative happiness as as a human. And that is that that death gives life a purpose. That that life has meaning and value because there's an ending, and we know there's an ending.
1: Right. It's like a story. Um, and the, and, and the, the figure in the chapter is Seneca. And he says, um, as with a good story, what matters is that it, it has to have a beginning, middle and an end. Whereas if we achieve this dream of a deathless world, which our scientists want to, and in some ways we saw in the COVID crisis, um, the attempt to defer death as long as possible, um, in doing so, we, we lose A lot else, in the sense that um, you know, heroism, for example, the heroism that we saw of of uh, first responders at 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 the height of the pandemic, or the heroism of firefighters and policemen and so forth. Those things only make sense in relation to the possibility of death. And so, Mm -hmm. if if there's no end point, life kind of meanders. And the more you try to hang on to the sort of lifeline, once it's reached its endpoint, the more you kind of degrade yourself. So Seneca. Famously taught that you should begin each day thinking that you might die. And then you don't live actually fearfully, like you said, Megan. You actually, that gives you courage because you're like, okay, well, this could be the end today. Um, That doesn't mean you take risks like a jackass, but you can go through life without this kind of constant anxiety and without a kind of life destroying anxiety about death, which we definitely saw with COVID over restrictions. Like what we're doing to children now is criminal and it's born of a. Of an irrational, completely irrational, now proven unscientific fear of death.
0: Right. It cannot be prevented. It cannot be avoided. What What can be avoided is living poorly, making mundane life choices that lead to a dull existence. Mm-hmm. And that's just that's the deal. That's that was the deal when we came into this world. We have to accept it. There's no renegotiating that deal. There's there's only making the best of it and understanding there's a chance to to make different choices, to help yourself along, just knowing that. I mean, I've, I've said many times, if there was one good thing about losing my parent at an early age, it was that realization. When you know it on a gut level, as opposed to just an intellectual level, how short life is, how fleeting, how quickly it can be gone, it does lead you to make different and I would say better choices. And so while the instinct usually is to push thoughts of death out of one's mind, as it may not be entirely pleasant, you shouldn't. You should spend some time thinking about it, realizing it's coming. We don't know when. And I don't just put challenging yourself to live better. Absolutely. Well, Saurabh, I'm excited for you taking on these battles, whether it's Hunter Biden, COVID, or the crazy wokesters who are trying to change not just our city, but our country big fan, and I wish you all the best with... I know the book is already kicking butt, but I I hope this helps even more and that everybody should go out and buy a copy. Again, The Unbroken Thread Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. All the best to you. Thank you, Megan. Really appreciate it. Up next, our pals Crystal and Sagar are back on why they broke away from their very successful show on TheHill.com. Their show Rising was doing great, but... They wanted to be independent and it's a risk, right? So it's happening. How's it going? How's it going to differ from what they were doing before? And why did they think it was so important? That's next. Bristol Ball and Sagar and Jetty. Yay. Congratulations.
3: Thank, Thank you. you.
0: I'm thrilled you've decided to just go independent and do your thing because you're both stars. And, you know, you should be working for yourselves. It's the new it's the new medium. And why wouldn't you?
3: I mean, we talk all the time about how much we believe in independent media. And of course, as you know, it's like it's scary to step out from under the, the corporate umbrella where, you know, you've got a certain amount coming in and you got health yep. insurance and all that good, bit, all that good stuff. But um, so far, it's gone really well. I mean, honestly, we've been blown away <laughs> by the response. Um, so we're, we're just excited and, and grateful. Explain what it is. As my, my understanding, Sagar, is that
0: it's going to be on YouTube and it's going to be a podcast.
4: That's right. So we intentionally made it more difficult for ourselves. And we said <laughs> uh, for premium subscribers that they get to watch the full show uncut. So we email that link to everybody an hour early before it goes live on YouTube, which is at 12 p.m. EST. And we give the full audio uncut as well. So no odd breaks or anything, which is in their podcast player. That's through the the awesome company that we partnered with who's powering our premium subscribers. And then everything else, it's just, it's normal um, for people who can't afford it or just want to watch for free. It's available as clips like it was for Rising, all on YouTube, on our Breaking Points YouTube channel. Same thing on any podcast player.
0: And is it like, is it a sliding scale or are you able to tell me how much it costs?
4: Oh, so we have it at $10 a month. Um, that's that's currently just how much it costs or $100 a okay. year for people who want okay. to sign up. And that's that's all they have to do.
0: That's cheap. That 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 works for me. I'll do it. (laughs) You've got me. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So, but so talk to me about why, because I would say it looked to me like you did have a fair amount of editorial freedom while on the hill. It's not exactly like working for Fox or MS or CNN. But what what more did you want that you couldn't get unless you went independent, Crystal?
3: Well, and you're right. I certainly had way more editorial freedom at the Hill than I ever had at MSNBC. And, you know, we took a lot of risks there that I think were uncomfortable at times for folks at the Hill. Um, But, you know, there were a couple things. I mean, number one, you know how these large organizations work. There are always going to be sort of pressure or incentive structures in place that make it more uncomfortable to cover certain topics. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I would be lying if I said that, you know, I'm not a normal human being who would be influenced by those pressure incentive structures. And there was also just an appearance that I really didn't like. So I'll give you an example. I don't know if you followed or covered this. Uh, Stephen Donziger, who won a b- multibillion dollar settlement against Chevron in defense of um uh, indigenous people whose land had been polluted, and Chevron has come aggressively after him. He's been under trial under basically BS circumstances in New York. And I started seeing tweets that were like, "Why are why are, isn't Crystal covering this? Is it because The Hill is taking money from the American Petroleum Institute, which they do? They're in corporate enterprise. They get money from them. They get money from Coke Industries. They get money from Pharma. They get all kinds of different sponsorships and money. And I hated even the idea." that that was influencing our coverage. So, you know, we thought we were in a position to be able to make this work and truly live the values that we espouse. And so we stepped down and, you know, took the plunge. So, in the podcast,
0: will there be ads have, or have, are we avoiding ads altogether? So, right now, we're just doing ads for
4: ourselves. We're just saying, hey guys, if you don't want to listen to our <laughs> annoying voice, just come, in, uh, go, come <laughs> and subscribe. Literally, literally uh, what we say. Like,
3: I think I like said that verbatim. Yet? Yeah.
4: It's a model. <laughs> like, hey, it's a model. must really like hearing my voice a lot. So, you should go ahead and
0: subscribe. <laughs> it's funny. You know, I think about it in myself now because I take ad money to, we're not subscription based, we're free. And, um, If a news story were to come up involving one of my advertisers, I'd have to be very transparent with the audience that, you know, this is, this is an advertisement, somebody who pays me. So, you know, I'm, I'm on dicey ground right now. That's one of the weirdnesses of being in media, but it's not totally distinct from having been on Fox news and, you know, running gold ads all day. If there were bad news in the gold market, I suppose I would have (laughs) had some pause then too, or mesothelioma. (laughs) What if I got mesothelioma?
4: I think the main thing, Megan, is it's not that uh, you can be opposed to advertising in principle. It's that wh- if it's your only source of revenue, your primary source of revenue, then it could introduce factors like what you're talking about. So, our goal here was to actually build like an anti fragile business, which is such that, look, like I'm not opposed to taking advertising, but let's say we do. And like you said, there's a news story or somebody conflicts with our values. We don't even have to have a question in our minds.
5: In that primary
4: source of revenue is always gonna be the people who support us. So like now now we can officially say the only people who own us are our fans, which I love. I mean they're you know they're they're our boss. And so in that way, they give us the freedom to produce a product where there is just nothing in my mind whatsoever. And you'll also know this at from your time at Fox. This is the same thing at the Hill. This is no knock on the hill. They're a media company. But when you're working there. There are interlocking interests. So, and I've told this story now publicly, but like, for example, I did a segment. This is all I said. All I said was, Maxine Waters will be the chairwoman of the Financial Services Committee until the day she dies. Now, what did I mean by that? I was talking about the the Democrats in the House hanging on to the seniority system. And her staff calls up the Hill and claims like, I'm threatening her life. Oh, right? come on. Yeah, I know. Exactly. And and this grow up here. We all know it's BS. It's all intimidation. But here's the thing. She's the chairwoman of financial services. They, Hill reporters need to be able to talk to her. Now, to their credit, they didn't tell me to shut up or anything like that. I was just aware that it was happening. But the thing is, is like I would be lying if I said that I didn't have to at least think once or twice about saying something or doing mm. something and not thinking about the adverse impact that that might have on um, it. That is so true. Whereas access, here, access. When you're, with
0: you're a big, when you're with a big organization that has a lot of tentacles, they need access and you can't yeah. be the one effing up the access all day long, no matter how fearless you would like to be in your own reporting. That is a true joy of being an independent.
3: Yes, absolutely. And, and one other thing that I'll say about this, because you know, being audience supported um, in and of itself is an, an incredible thing and gives you tremendous freedom. But there's also a risk to that model as well, which is if your audience is all of one ideological stripe or partisan team, then you can be beholden to that audience too, in terms of always looking to tell them what fits their narrative or what they want to hear. So the other piece that we've been really proud of that we hope we're able to bring over to breaking points as well is we truly have people across the entire ideological spectrum who have been um, watching our content and, and really appreciated, And so that means, look, number one, on every any given day, we're going to be pissing off some part of our audience and making your some brand. part of our audience happy. <laughs> so it's another way that you sort of, you know, you have to be aware of your own incentive structures, like the things that may be influencing your reporting and your behavior, even if you're not aware of them. And so Knowing that we've got an audience that's across the spectrum that's going to back us up is um, is something that I'm just incredibly grateful for.
0: Well, it, it's worked out perfectly because your time at the Hill helped you build an audience. Now you're ready to, you know, you're all grown up and you're ready to launch on your own with that loyal following. I I have zero doubt that this will be a success and that you guys will be so happy. And a couple of years from now, we'll all be, you know, hopefully fat, drunk, and stupid celebrating how wonderful our new independent lives are away <laughs> from these large corporate media organizations that, you know, when you work as an employee for one of these groups, you're necessarily a little too cozy with power. You just are just necessarily a little too tied into the very elites. That's sort of the theme of today's episode, that you guys regularly rail against. You know, you can get sucked into it and you can, you certainly are working for people who who are out in Davos and out in Aspen and may not share the agenda of your audience.
4: Yeah, you're exactly right. And that's, that's part of the issue, which is that... And we were actually talking about this recently with Matt Taibbi, and he was relaying a story to us about... He wrote this great piece on Goldman Sachs after the financial crisis. And he oh, was yeah. like, yeah, the and, you know, I, I heard that you know the owner of Conde Nast or whatever Was at a party, and like, you know, somebody at Goldman made it known that they didn't like my piece. And it's again, it's not that there was an editorial change to his piece or to his writing or to his behavior, but how can you not think about that? Like, you have to think about ownership. A key part of our show has always been follow the money, understand how elite corruption works, understand influence peddling, understand how exactly colossal media screw ups like that you've pointed to with Jeffrey Epstein and ABC News and so much of that, you need to understand how this stuff works. And in order to truly be able to reveal, I think that stuff for all of our audience, it was important that we become independent eventually.
0: Well, but the other thing you said in announcing the show, which I want to talk to you about, was CNN, Fox News and MSNBC are ripping us apart and making millions of dollars doing it. Billions, really, in the case of certainly Fox and CNN, if you add in their online property, Um, they are. And I, I do feel having grown up in the cable news industry, that it is worse than ever, that they're, they're less tethered to fact and, you know, providing a public service than ever.
3: Sectarian conflict sells. And, you know, this is the, this is also, we just mentioned that Taibbi's this whole thesis of his book is basically. You know, you had a long era, the Cold War era, where there was a clear sort of external boogeyman. Then you had the War on Terror era, where there was also a clear sort of external boogeyman that could be used to gin up ratings and numbers for 24-hour cable news networks. And now the enemy is each other. And so, you know, whether it's Fox News convincing liberal, convincing their audience that liberals are out to like destroy their lives and their kids, et cetera, et cetera, and their way of life, or whether it's MSNBC and CNN convincing you that not, and I'm not talking about elites here, I'm just talking about regular rank and pile Republicans, that they're the biggest threat to the nation, the biggest threat to your lives. Um, those things reverberate throughout our society and have massive consequences that we all live with. I just actually, on today's um, on the inaugural episode of Breaking Points, talked about a new study that showed, look, for people like me who believe in economic populist solutions and believe in having, you know, basic dignity for the American working class, these sectarian divides make that type of politics impossible because everybody just fixates on these sort of cultural conflicts. Rather than any of mm. the policies that could really change things for people across the political spectrum and make life better. Because look, bottom line is if you hate the person down the street who has a different political ideology than you do, why do you want to have a policy in place that's gonna kind of help that person? So the more mm-hmm. that, that division festers and people profit off of exploiting these divides, and I think Trump was, you know, chief among those who profited off of it. And then the liberals who love to oppose him also got rich and famous profiting off of those divides too. But it all has has massive consequences. So we're just planting our flag in the ground of trying to be, you know, a little, a little island of doing things a slightly a different way and trying to really point at where the problems actually come from, which is from a corrupt system and a completely failed political class.
0: You guys see problems, not parties. I've, that's sort of been your thing from the beginning. You, you're not No one on your set is wearing a jersey. You're open about where you stand on certain issues, but you surprise people. Both of you can come at an issue that wouldn't necessarily be from the traditional left or the traditional right. It's one of the reasons you've been so successful. But I will say this, as that happens, as... um, as the country gets more divided as the cable news game sort of gets exposed a little bit more i really feel like with the birth of digital media and the explosion of it i should say they're being exposed you know and what their sort of their game is becoming more obvious people are tuning out mm-hmm. and uh, it's not just because trump's gone that is the number one reason but but it's not just about trump i just looked at the latest numbers and i love sort of following the cable news numbers because i lived it for so long cnn year over year right now is down Forty five percent in the overall numbers and fifty three percent in the key advertising demo of twenty five to fifty four. They lost more than half of their audience. And frankly, it's again, the only audience they care about is the younger demo because that's how they sell ads. That's how they stay afloat. Fox down thirty seven percent in the overall thirty eight percent in the demo. MSNBC is actually down the least twenty two in the overall thirty two in the in the demo. The daytime averages and the demos for these networks, listen to these, listen to what these numbers are. Fox News is number one averaging in daytime between the younger demo, 203,000 per show. 147 people, 147,000 people, CNN, 108,000 is the average for the MSNBC daytime show. That means Nicole Wallace, those people, she's getting 100,000 people. That's nothing. I guarantee you guys are going to beat that on your very first day with ease. That's nothing. It's embarrassing. I'm telling you, I've said it before. My ass would have been fired if I had anything near these numbers. Well, and how many? I never did. How
3: much of those numbers are like on the background in an airport where you have no choice exactly. but to, watch, you know, or it's right. just like permanently gone in a restaurant or whatever. No, I mean, listen, I don't want to brag, but I will. Um, Before we even launched, we posted a couple of little like, hey guys, here's our new set. We're really excited type of videos to our channel. And they're already getting higher numbers than that. To our YouTube channel that had zero subscribers when we started. So that just gives you a sense of how pathetically minuscule it is. And look, I'm not just cheering for their decline as like, you know, uh, because I used to work in the industry or whatever. Like they are really bad for the country. And so the fewer people that watch that crap, the better.
0: No, I've got to challenge you on. I have to challenge you on crap. I do. I give you Jim Acosta with a with a segment about Trump's speech this past weekend that is absolutely in line for an Emmy. And you decide for yourselves whether this is crap. Listen,
5: it's as if much of the Republican Party is trapped in a Jimmy Buffett tune. Wasting away again. In Mar-a-Lagoville, <laughs> looking for that next election to assault. <laughs> Some people claim that there is an orange man to blame, but I know it's my own damn fault.
1: <laughs> oh my God. So <laughs>
4: okay. I just can't Help believe me. <laughs> right? This is where I'm like, this is where I am stunned because, Megan, I mean, we track the same trends, right? As, as you were saying, oh, by the way, Risings, or uh, not Rising, uh, Breaking Points, our new <laughs> show's entire audience is in the demo, literally, all, you know, however right. millions of people that there are. There's so much cognitive dissonance around this. And I've come to the conclusion that they must actually believe some of the stuff that they're doing because it is so unbelievably bad for business. I mean, something they just are... So there's a phenomenon where they seem to be reporting more for themselves and for, you know, accolades from their colleagues than from actual people. And that doesn't I don't want to, you know, I don't want to discount. There are still millions of people who watch cable news and there are millions who at the very least have imprinted a way of thinking about politics into millions that I think we're going to be dealing with for a really long time. So their decline is something that I welcome because I think it's actively bad for the country. The real effort is trying to you know, get these new mediums, the new media and everything into the same powerful position. And that's that's still a decades long project, in my opinion.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: but it, it's well underway. And you, you think about the media embarrassments and just total dereliction of duty this past year um, when it comes to COVID. The Wall Street Journal, there's this article about it. The, the headline is it's a column. It's, it's a, an opinion piece, the uh, commentary. The Science Suggests a Wuhan Lab Leak. I mean, well, duh, now we do know this, but this, these guys actually know what they're talking about. Um, two doctors, one is uh, author of Stay Safe, a Physician's Guide to Survive Coronavirus, and the other guy, Muller, is uh, an emeritus professor of physics at the University of California, Berkeley, a former senior scientist at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. And, and let me just tell the audience what it says, because it's, it's the best article I've seen yet, or piece yet, on How we know this came from a lab. I mean, we all but know, I guess is the way to put it. They say, quote, this virus has a genetic footprint that has never been observed in a natural coronavirus ever. Number two, a scientist follow along can increase the lethality of a coronavirus enormously by splicing a special sequence into its genome. It leaves no trace of manipulation but it makes the virus very effective at injecting genetic material into the victim's cells. They say the insertion sequence of choice is called the double CGG. It is readily available and convenient, and scientists have a lot of experience with inserting it. It also allows the scientists the added bonus of tracking its insertion, like it has a beacon that allows the scientist who inserted it to follow it. Um, Again, double CGG combo has never been found naturally in a virus. And now I'm quoting. Now the damning fact, these guys say. It was this exact sequence that appears in COVID-19. Proponents of zoonotic origin, meaning, you know, some pangolin. I I still pangolin still confuses me. Anyway, some animal wound up in a wet market. That's zoonotic origin um, and gave it directly to a human. That's what appears to be BS. They say proponents of that theory have to explain why this novel coronavirus when it mutated or recombined just happened to pick the virus's very least combination the double cgg why did it replicate the choice that the labs gain of function researchers would have made yes <laughs> it could have happened randomly through mutations but do you believe that this is quoting still at the minimum they write this fact that the coronavirus with all its random possibilities took the rare and unnatural combination used by human researchers, implies that the leading theory for the origin of the coronavirus must be laboratory escape. Boom. And nobody covered it, you guys. People and those who tried were shamed out of it or silenced.
4: And not just silenced. People were taken off Twitter for months, actually, as a result of this. I think it's I I said this today on our show. I believe this might actually be as big of a screw up as Iraq WMD. And if you think about what the global impact of this is, we're talking about multi-trillion dollar shutdown of our economy. We're talking about an entire different course of the pandemic. I mean, remember that if the lab leak theory is in fact true in all current evidence, he makes it, I would say, the leading theory as to how exactly coronavirus came in the first place. Then Dr. Fauci is directly involved. I mean, this completely changes the entire course of the pandemic about how we regard public health guidelines from the same people who have been funding and pushing gain-of-function research. And I think the biggest problem around the lab leak theory and more is that all of the people braying about trust the science and everyone forgot to realize that scientists are just like everybody else. And mm-hmm. they have a lot of money at stake if, if the lab leak theory comes out to be true. And the media basically did the beat, beat the bidding of the public health establishment for ye- for over a year and gaslit a huge portion of the public into thinking that the truth or at least a potential likelihood was completely debunked when it was actually the opposite. That was the opposite. That's
0: right. That's, those are the words they use, Crystal. Debunked, um, conspiratorial, they said. Fringe. And, yeah. and here's one other piece from the journal uh, article. They're pointing out that other coronaviruses like SARS and MERS, MERSA, whatever, however you say that, um, that they were both confirmed... To have a natural origin. Okay, so those did not start in a lab. Um, They evolved rapidly at those two actual natural origin um, coronaviruses. They evolved rapidly as they spread through humans until the most contagious forms dominated. That's what a natural coronavirus is expected to do. COVID-19 did not work that way. Quote, it appeared in humans already adapted into an extremely contagious version. No serious viral, quote, improvement took place until a minor variation occurred many months later in England. Such early optimization is unprecedented, and it suggests a long period of adaptation that predated its public spread, i.e., in a lab in Wuhan, China, where a woman who worked with bat coronaviruses trying to make them more dangerous in so-called gain-of-function research was working on these very things. And three of her lab workers got very, very sick in November of 19. And the Chinese put a stifle on it so that that news couldn't get out and then shut down visits to the lab. The, the proof is there. It's right in front of your very eyes. And normally reporters, when they smell a story like that, you can't stop them. That's what's normal.
3: That's what should be normal um, anyway. But I mean, look, I'm not a bat coronavirus expert, mm-hmm. but all I'm asking is that we just look at the facts and see where they lead. And as you're pointing out, it increasingly seems like the weight of the evidence is on the side of the lab loop. Now, is it definitive yet? No. And it may never be. It may always be a game of probabilities. But as you're pointing out, these previous coronavirus um, cases, they actually found the animals from where it had evolved. So they were able to point directly to, okay, this is where it came from, and this is how it evolved, and here's how we ended up here. They haven't been able to do any of that with. COVID-19. So I think it's such an important story about the media because it really exposed the blind spots that are only getting worse and which were really exacerbated by the Trump era. You had on one side people like Trump and Senator Tom Cotton and others who were largely on the right who were talking about the lab leak theory. And some of them were irresponsible and insinuating that like the Chinese released it on purpose. And there's zero evidence of that. And that seems completely insane. But you had that was the group on the one side. And then on the other side, you had a group of scientists who jumped out very quickly to say, no, 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 it's 100 percent not that. And we're very confident it's zoonotic in origin. And so what a lot of journalists did, and, and some have even admitted to this, is because they trusted and they had a long relationship with some of the scientists who were involved, they erred on the side of believing them. Versus, because they thought, you know, these are partisan actors who are motivated to just smear China. They didn't do their own investigating or their own questioning mm-hmm. of what incentives the scientific community that was feeding them this line might have. Then, when you layered so, on top it's of dangerous. that, yeah, yeah sorry, and then ahead. when you layered on top of that, the fact that some were saying, "Oh, well, the the lab leak hypothesis is racist." That's when it really became completely off the table, and now. Personally, I think it was a lot more racist when people were saying like, oh, it's so gross what Chinese people eat. And they got this from bat soup and were sharing all those weird pictures at the beginning. That seems to me more problematic. But either way, you should be just looking at what actually happened so that we can avoid another pandemic again in the future.
0: OK, but eating a live bat is is disgusting. And I don't care if you call me a racist for saying it. <laughs> it's
3: hot, disgusting. Hot again, hot dogs are also <laughs> disgusting, though, in fairness. They
0: are totally gross. I agree with that. And so are clams. <laughs>
3: Um, but no, it is an example
0: of of how identity politics in infects our media in a way that is totally antithetical antithetical to what journalism ought to be. The, there's the old adage in journalism that, like, you know, you check it out. Your mother tells you she loves you, but you check it out. Right? Like you don't take anything at face value. And this has got all of the indicators of kick the tires, please, because the scientific community, yes, you could see that they might have. They might be compromised on a big story like this. The the racial sort of identity politics strain, uh, strain being called a racist if you say this other thing, that would normally make most reporters say, I'm going to try harder to figure out whether I'm being silenced by somebody using a line like that on me. But what's happened here is all of the attempts to shame people out of real reporting based on identity policy or what have you worked. And then you had the assist by big tech and on something that's killed over three million people. Uh, It depends, right? Because now they're rolling back some of the numbers because people are admitting they overstated them. People died with corona as opposed to from corona. But in any event, a lot of people died. We still don't have real answers as to what started it. And so we're no better off in some ways than we were in November of 19 when those three lab workers got sick.
4: No, you're absolutely right. And I think that the biggest problem of all of this is that not only are we not better off, is that we actually have worse information because people have been gaslit otherwise. I mean, there are millions of people who will forever believe that the lab leak hypothesis is itself racist. There's actually almost nothing you can do at this point after, what, a year of MSNBC segments and CNN segments as well to the contrary. So in that way, I think that the failure on the media level is just so catastrophic. And at the end of the day, this was my same point on Russiagate, which is there are real consequences to this stuff. Like the number amongst Democratic voters, the Democratic base, they believe Russia is a much bigger threat than China. I mean, if you know, that's ludicrous if you look at any metric whatsoever in terms of geopolitical competition, military, et cetera. And if you were to look at what the consequences of this are, which is that the scientific community, by and large, is going full forward with gain of function research, the global virome project of $1.2 billion towards preventing the next pandemic, that's their response. Possibly the very same thing that unleashed this terrible event in the first place. So it's just such a horrific failure.
3: Hmm. Meanwhile, do
0: you see a future in which we do get more divided into normal people and these so-called elites? I mean, it's obviously that's what's happening in big tech right now. I had a guest recently who was saying it's the controlled and the controllers. But do you think there's any hope that society is going to start redefining itself less with partisan jerseys and more with shared interests in problem solving.
3: I have to have that hope because otherwise it's, you know, why engage in politics? (laughs) Why do what we do? And in fact, I, it sounds really hokey to say, but it's true. Like our audience gives me that hope every single day. Um, because we, we truly do have people who come at this from all walks of life, all different political perspectives, all different parts of the country, all of that. And they're able to come together and watch the show. We've had so many people say, like, I couldn't even talk to my brother, my dad, my uncle, my friend about politics. And now we have this language and we actually see these certain commonalities where we can have a discussion. We may not come to, you know, agree on everything. But you can kind of then see the game that's being played, this game of division that's very profitable for people who are already, you know, already have a lot of power and status and money. So I am hopeful that that game is being exposed. And the more that it's exposed, the more that people will ultimately opt out of it, as we're seeing in real time, as you, you know, as you demonstrated very effectively with those cable news numbers falling off of the cliff.
0: Oh, by the way, the good news is apparently Jim Costa. I mean, who the hell knows when he airs, but my my. Crack Team informs me he has a 3 p.m. show on Saturday that averages around 80,000 in the demo. <laughs> that's you're next to a Slashy. Now, that's, they give you a Slashy when you're under 50. Slashy is total oblivion. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Bye, Jim. Bye, Jim. All right, so wait. So let's just make sure we know how people can find you and support you. So um, again, it, it's say the name of the, of the show again. Easy. Breaking Points on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. So easy. You can get it free or you can get sort of the streamlined version without them talking about their own show (laughs) as their ads. That's right. Um, For just ten dollars a month, which is well worth it. I'm so excited for you guys. All the best of luck.
3: Come back anytime you want
0: and give them hell. Thank you, Megan.
3: Thank you, Megan.
0: Up next, Dan Abrams is in the business of media, in addition to being the chief legal analyst for ABC News. And he was the host of the big, big show Live PD, the A&E canceled just because they can't have shows on television anymore that reflect cops in any way other than awfully. Um, Anyway, it was a huge show. Sadly, it's no longer, but maybe it'll come back someday. And um, Dan runs his own media company, so he knows a thing or two about our media and where it stands right now what does he think about the horrific performance it's delivered when it comes to things like the covid lab theory being suppressed plus he's got a very cool new book out called Kennedy's Avenger Assassination Conspiracy and the Forgotten Trial of Jack Ruby this is going to help you flip the pages and pass the time on the on the beach this summer and educate you a bit on a really interesting legal and political case in our country's history so don't miss Dan But first, I'm going to bring you a feature we have here on the MK show called Real Talk, where we talk about something going on in my life, life in general, our country, etc. And today, I want to spend one minute on what happened this past weekend with my daughter's soccer game. I sent out this tweet, got a lot of response. And so I figured it might be worth kicking around as we build up to the end of the soccer season. This this for her was her last game because we're going to be away for the very last one. And it's the end of her time with this team because we're moving. And uh, so it was a big one, right? She, she's been on this team since she was, I don't know, four? She started in this league and then she made this travel team when she was six and now she's 10. So she's been with these girls a long time and was really looking forward to this game. It's, it's the travel team. So we were leaving New York. We were going up to Westchester, you know, an area right north of New York City for the game. And we got a notification, I don't know, five days earlier saying, the girls were going to have to wear masks while playing outdoors. And the forecast was that it was going to be plus 90 degree heat. By the way, we watched the temperature as we were out there. It was it hit 100 at one point. So you've got 100 degree heat, a bunch of 10 year olds who pose almost zero threat when it comes to COVID running around in a field not close to anyone, right? Not even close to each other. They're running away from each other. Um, being told initially that they have to wear their masks. In the New York area, the COVID death count, the COVID case count, they're down to record lows. It's a miracle how well New York is doing. And yet still, because this was a school district that had its policy, the girls were being told masks. And of course, parents on the sidelines were going to have to have masks, everybody. And I sent out a tweet saying, I don't want to pull her from this, but this isn't safe. And you guys have heard me say before, our pediatrician told me that early on. He said, letting your kid run around in 90 degree heat with a mask on is dangerous. It is. Don't, don't let her do that. And he said, grownups too shouldn't be running with masks on. It's dangerous. It's not safe. So that we were not going to let her play. And it was painful. Uh, you know, I didn't want to say no to her. And I don't feel that I or any other parents should be placed in this stupid position. It's just stupid. I've got to assuage somebody else's unbased fear, right? Fear that's not based in reality. You're you're not going to get it from 10-year-olds playing soccer on an open field in the great outdoors. Uh, So I've got to endanger my child to assuage your unrealistic fear? No. And it just pisses me off for anybody who would impose such a policy to begin with. Well, thankfully, it turns out our sort of parent mom, um, our our mom who like does all the managing and scheduling and all that fun stuff for our team, who's amazing, pushed back on the school and went back and said, this can't possibly be. They had said it was a school mandate. It wasn't really an opposing team mandate. And the place it landed ultimately was the girls have to wear the masks on the sidelines and to and fro, you know, across the field, but not while they're actually on the field, but all the parents have to wear the masks. And we had to accept that, you know, it's like <laughs> that, that at least was something that would let her play in a way that wasn't dangerous. So, so we did go. Well, the story had a happy ending. They tied. That wasn't the happy ending. The, the happy ending was no one had a mask. <laughs> I mean, no one. The parents didn't wear masks. The girls didn't wear masks. The refs didn't wear masks. Nobody even had the stupid mask hanging underneath their chin. Maybe two people. Everybody else was mask free, which was a collective rhetorical middle finger to these stupid ass rules that people still have on the books and are somewhat enforcing. And I think, you know, a little pushback can go a long way. Uh, I'm really relieved that our team did it and got a better answer and that when people showed up, they behaved like responsible adults who don't need a piece of fabric over their face in 100 degree heat to protect one another. And by the way, I don't know if it's relevant, but this is a more working class area. And I think just back to the discussions we've been having with Dennis Prager and others, I just think people who really have to work for a living have their priorities straight. They don't obsess over stupid nonsense like virtue signaling now with the masks, which is what it is. It is not anything more than that. You don't need them. Uh, out- outdoors? Are you kidding me? So reason prevailed, though the Red Bulls did not. They tied. They were down three three zero, which was scary. <laughs> and then they came back to tie it up. If they had had two more minutes, they, they probably would have won. But it was a great season. It's been a great run. I can't say enough about you know childhood athletics and getting your kids involved in organized teams because all the things she does. This is the most important. You know, we're leaving New York. She's leaving her school. Uh, She's leaving her friends. And I think the hardest thing for her to leave is going to be this soccer team, right? The kind of bonds you form when you play organized athletics and are part of a team that got the blood, sweat and tears on the field every week, even at her young age. There's no substitute for it. Um, It's been a great ride. I've bonded with the the moms and and the dads on this team in a really great way. And I don't know. It's just feeling a little nostalgic about it. Change. Change is good not always easy, but it's good. So happy ending. And uh, the lesson here is like, like Tatiana in Carmel, New York. If you're told to do something unreasonable or someone tries to manipulate your child into a situation, you know, is not safe for him or her fight. That is today's edition of Real Talk. Dan Abrams is next. Dan Abrams. How are you? Hi, Megan. How's everything?
5: Good. Good. Thanks for having me on.
0: I'm excited to talk about this legal case. I love that you're doing this. You find these old legal cases that, I mean, in this case, weirdly hasn't gotten enough attention and write about them. We did an event right before the COVID shutdown on your book about John Adams, his first big trial. Um, But this one people know about. Obviously, they know about the, the Kennedy assassination and Jack Ruby who stepped in and killed Oswald. So we're going to get to that in one second. But first, let's let's just t- spend a little time on the media. Okay? Cuz I've been going off about something that I think we agree on, which is how did our industry so drop the ball on the COVID lab leak theory? How did we allow no one to seriously look into that pursue investigative reporting on it, to accept the Facebook ban on it? How
5: so I, I will tell you that a few months ago, I actually was asking the same question, um, which was, how is the media, I mean, because as, as you know, I, I own mediaite.com uh, yeah. and- um, well, I
0: love that website. Everybody should check it out. It's you. great for like even news summaries. You catch up on news on that site, not just on news anchors. And
5: your producer, Steve Krakauer, was one of the the founding members of the, That's uh, right, the, exactly. the Mediaite team. Um, so- you know, I don't get involved much in the editorial on the site, I, but I will occasionally pitch them stories, right? I'll say, you know, why isn't anyone doing this or that? And this is one of the stories that I pitched um, in March. And I said, why is it okay that people are calling this debunked and a conspiracy theory, um, et cetera? Um, and so Caleb Howe actually wrote a story that was published uh, a few months ago asking the same question and citing some very good articles that were saying that there did appear to be fear in the media about you know about mm. the possibility and again we don't know for sure but the possibility that Donald Trump was right right that the, the possibility mm. um and I think that look I do I think there's there's a hesitancy in the in the mainstream media to have supported something that was controversial and which didn't fit with what the, you know, uh, the mainstream, let's call it the the, the liberal media would have liked, right? The outcome, which is the easiest, right? This idea that it came from animals is such an easier sort of no blame sort of explanation.
0: Rainbows, unicorns, humans are still good
5: you don't have to point your fingers at anyone and that may still be th- the case but but the fact that that there was an unwillingness to even seriously evaluate this is a you know is a serious you know um uh, uh, failure on the part of the media and i don't think there's any other way to say it i mean th- again i would just i would say there were there were pockets of even the mainstream media that sure. were like, you know, Sanjay Gupta, even at CNN, was questioning it, uh, was saying J- that it's Josh al- Rogan it. of the Washington Post. Yeah, exactly. Post. So, so, so it's not that everyone, right? But there were way too many, way too many who were unwilling to, uh, you know, question the orthodoxy.
0: And how do you, the thing that I can't get past is how we allowed the Facebook ban. I realize we don't run Facebook. We plead journalists or pleb. I'm told it's pleb. I prefer plebe. Anyway, the point is we have we're we're minions. Um, how do we allow Mark Zuckerberg to say you may not speak about that? You may not write about that on, on Facebook for a year. How is there not a rising up of the industry to say. but But this is how we solve problems, we converse. And we kick around theories and we get different scientists who know more than we do. And we interview them and we do investigative reporting like Vanity Fair just did. And we get State Department officials to go on record with their names on meetings that are being held like, holy shit, that seems like (laughs) we probably shouldn't open this can of worms because we're the ones who funded this gain of function research. Great reporting, but it, it came too late. And we as an industry seem to have just rolled our big bellies over and taken the abuse. And so far, Dan, I feel like. We're setting ourselves up to to take more abuse because I don't think Zuckerberg's learned lessons, and I'm not sure we have either. Well, look, I well, I, I look, I whether I'm, I'm hesitating to say whether I think the media
5: has learned any lessons from it. The media has done the usual sl- self-flagellation that occurs, right? How could this have occurred, and what happened here, et cetera? But you know, there's no sort of willingness to be you know, most direct and honest about it, which is to say that there was just a general unwillingness to, um, pursue this theory. Like it it just so many people didn't want it to be true. Um, and I think that, I think that was, uh, that was part of the problem, but, but on the issue of Facebook, you know, look, um, Facebook is enormously powerful. And I will say that, that even if their quote unquote heart is in the right place, because I don't think that it was about. On this particular issue. I don't think it was about liberal and conservative and this and that. It was about the fact that they were following the lead incorrectly of the, you know, the mainstream sentiment that was that would be um, an inaccurate statement. The problem is, I can see why Facebook wants to be in the business of saying if you're going to sort of post stuff about vaccines being dangerous and this and that and stuff that really there's there's no support for and it's dangerous to society. That I can I can understand that. This is different. This is not about how you might be in danger, right? Or something that you this is about just figuring out how this happened, um, what led to it. It's that important investigation, right? But it's not the same as them getting involved and saying, You know, look, and that's a separate question, right, about how involved they should be at all. But 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 it's not it's not the same question as evaluating whether Facebook can say, you know, we're not going to allow total disinformation to be spread on our on our platform. Of
0: course, it's a slippery slope, though, because, you know, their their pronouncements on what is disinformation don't match up with the facts, right? You shouldn't be banning stories on Hunter Biden and you shouldn't be banning stories on the lab leak. And and there was a fair amount of politics involved in this early on because, as you accurately point out, you know, Trump was saying it. What if Trump's right? This guy we all hate and we think he's racist. You had the New York Times reporter explicit, explicitly saying even last week, um, it's racist. This is a racist theory, which we, we heard early on too, a poor Amanda um, who just last week, we t- t- tweeted somebody. Someday mm-hmm. we will stop talking about the lab leak theory and maybe even admit its racist roots. But alas, that day is not yet here. No, it isn't, porva. It's not, because it's not racist. It, it turns out to be, we, we believe, fact. Well, and- oh, a
5: legitimate theory. It's not a, I mean, it's a legitimate theory.
0: Right? It's, we it is we the it is the prevailing theory. There is no I'm, I'm, theory that is more I'm likely not, than the lab leak right now.
5: Well, I, I'm not sure that that's true, but I think that Why? it's that, based that, on what, based on the fact that when you talk to, and again, I'm not an expert in this area. Right, I don't know exactly how this stuff transfers, you know, from a bat to a human. Right, I, I just don't. Um, but I can tell you that when I read, even you know, now from looking not talking about the mainstream media, but to actually read what the you know the people who study this stuff are saying it is still considered just as likely that it no, occurred it in another. Oh, OK, Absolutely I mean, maybe, maybe did you see the right.
0: Wall Street Journal reporting? The virus has a genetic footprint that has yeah. never been observed in a natural coronavirus okay. that it's got this thing called a double CGG combo. It's never been found naturally, it, yeah. but it is a favorite of those like the bat lady in the Wuhan lab who manipulate coronaviruses. It makes it super easy for the virus to infect a human in a very efficient way. And this woman excluded that gene combo from her write-up of the coronavirus, of this of COVID-19, in February of 2020. This woman, who is the expert and who was doing this research, and it was gain-of-function research to make it more dangerous, she excluded that particular double CGG section, even though it was obvious to any scientist who would, who would check it out in the data that accompanied her paper. Why'd she do that? Why? Because she was covering it up, Dan,, there, there well, that, but look, but look I don't, I'm not stating is, look. as a matter no, 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 no. I, I'm not stating as a matter of fact that it came out of the, out of the Wuhan Lab, but I am saying there is no question now that that appears to be the most likely source of this virus, and anybody who's now treating that as second tier or even to something else isn't paying attention.
5: Well, look, all I can tell you is that, you know, I'm not seeing the same level of certainty that you are. And again, I didn't read this article this morning, so I plead ignorance uh, on that article. So, um, if that you know, if that becomes the definitive uh, article, look, I can be convinced. It's not that I, you know, I don't have a stake in this, right? I'm perfectly happy to be convinced. As I said to you, I'm the one who was pitching the story to media saying, "Why are people calling this debunked? It doesn't look debunked at all to me." Um, as to whether it is the only theory that can be taken seriously, or is the you know, that I just, you know, I, I'm I, maybe well, I I'm not that. enough of an expert. Now you're, this, you're, but, now you're creating yeah. a
0: straw man. I didn't say only theory that can be taken serious. I said is the predominant the lead theory. theory. It absolutely is the lead okay. theory. And, and I and I believe most likely and I think that's that's emerging now by the day. And then, you know, there's the other strain of just the amount to which we tried to cover it up. That Vanity Fair report was just gangbusters on the amount to which our s- most respected scientists worked behind the scenes. To stop people from talking about this because we had been funding this so-called gain of function research, which made the viruses more dangerous, ostensibly in order to, you know, research it and be able to fight it. But there was a, something bad happened and a lot of people died. And we need a we need an honest look at how. All right, wait, let yeah, me Yeah, well shift look, gears and part of the,
5: the problem is, you know, and again, this is and I'm not claiming to be an expert, the World Health Organization quote unquote study on this was a real problem, right? Was the <laughs> Um, faith in institutions,
0: fact, well, right? It's like right. The, no, but another one gave, drops.
5: But that's what made it the extremely unlikely, right? They, they were the ones yeah. who came out and said it's extremely unlikely. Um, and you know, I remember again, this is just, you know, as as I was following this, looking at sort of the organizations involved and in the conflicts associated with that, I was like, hmm, this doesn't seem like a particularly credible. Um, conclusion based on the fact that, you know, it was already clear before they even reached their conclusion. This was the conclusion they were going to reach.
0: That's right. The the Chinese were like, this is a beautiful report you have here. I would love the chance to edit it before you release it. Oh, we can have it. Great. Oh, we handpicked all the doctors who went over scientists who came to the Wuhan lab to to do it in the first place. What could possibly go wrong?
5: Yeah. So, um, all right. So let
0: me, let me shift gears with you on conspiracy theories because it's not that all of your books are about conspiracy theories, but your latest book involves a case that is replete with them. And um, I remember talking to Arlen Specter back in my days oh, of, yeah. you know, of covering the Supreme Court, And he, he was one of those Where's Waldo guys who had been on everything on every case. He was on the Warren the young, commission. He yep. was on the Warren commission and yep. he was saying it it wasn't the single bullet theory. It was the single bullet conclusion. And he was, not conspiratorial, and believed that Oswald had shot Kennedy. That was the end of that. Um, You've taken a look at sort of the immediate next chapter in your latest book to that whole story, and it is uh, the story of Jack Ruby. And like, who was this guy? And what happened to this guy? And why don't we know more about that trial? The book is called Kennedy's Avenger, Assassination, Conspiracy, and the Forgotten Trial of Jack Ruby. So what What is the answer to that? I mean, who was he? Why was it so interesting? And why have people sort of forgotten Jack Ruby in the story of JFK's assassination? You
5: know, you and I cover trials, right? And we cover legal stories, et cetera. I was embarrassed that I didn't even know about the trial of Jack Ruby. I mean, I know, my, co- my co-author and I were sitting there. We'd written three books about presidents and great trials that they'd been involved in. Um, you know, great trial that Lincoln argued, Teddy Roosevelt is the defendant in a case, John Adams representing the British soldiers. And we're like, is there another one? Started talking about JFK, or like, obviously Oswald is dead. And we sort of looked at each other and we're like, whatever happened with the Jack Ruby trial? And then we dug in and we couldn't believe how interesting it was and what a big deal the trial was and how controversial it was and how many of the conspiracy theories emerged from the trial of Jack Ruby. Um, and so, you know, we use the transcript of the trial and coverage from the time to try and bring the story to life um of the trial of uh the forgotten trial, really is, of of Jack Ruby and the fact that, you know, he was convicted and then his conviction was overturned. And, you know, I think that he and he died in prison. But if he hadn't died, I think he was prepared to present a strategy that would have gotten him out in time with time served and it's kind of amazing to think about that
0: right so just to take people back um it was november 22nd 1963 that jfk was shot in dallas uh around an hour later oswald was arrested in a movie theater lee harvey oswald and then two days later november 24th 1963 Oswald was shot by Jack Ruby. And it was on camera, and the news reporters had it, and we've teed up a little clip. Listen.
5: There is Lee Oswald. He's been shot. He's been shot. Lee Oswald has been shot. There's the man with a gun. It's absolute panic. Absolute panic here in the basement of Dallas Police Headquarters. Detectives have their guns drawn. Oswald
0: had been shot. It's hard to imagine the hugeness of this. You know, a president's assassinated, yeah. right? Yeah. And then the guy who the police say did it gets assassinated himself two days later yeah. on camera. Like, yeah. I don't know. It's, it, it's got some parallels to what we watched with Derek Chauvin in that. Not, not in terms of the scale, but somebody gets killed on camera. You watch it with your very eyes. Then this sort of trial of the century happens and everyone's got very strong opinions.
5: Megan, it's, it, no, it's a very good comparison uh, for this reason. And you know not many people have made it. But the, the, the reason that there's a real comparison is because in picking a jury, you are now trying to find jurors who can be fair, but who have all seen the crime occur, the incident. Mm-hmm. And during the Ruby trial, the lawyers for Jack Ruby insisted that they wanted to find jurors, none of whom had seen the video. They said they cannot, oh, be eye- cannot be eyewitnesses to the crime. And, you know, there was a similar question in the Chauvin case about whether these jurors could be fair, um, having seen the video. And the answer, in my view, in both cases is that, you know, yes, you can find jurors who have not taken a position on... Exactly what the video means, and Jack Ruby was a little more straightforward in terms of you know he literally steps forward um, and and shoots Oswald, and yet he presents a a pretty complicated defense. I mean, initially, his defense was going to be what would be effectively viewed as manslaughter today—murder without malice, meaning he just lost it. He didn't want Jackie to have to come testify. He loved JFK, and he just. Had sort of saw Oswald walking, saw this smirk on his face, and he just lost it because he carried a gun with him at all times, uh, really. Um, And that's not the defense they pursued. Instead, they pursued a sort of a a kind of insanity defense, which was to say that he literally did not remember the incident, that he had a a form of a rare form of epilepsy and that he had an epileptic um, event and um, that During that time, he doesn't recall anything. And the reason I think that they went for this defense is because he had this sort of high profile lawyer who was probably the Mm -hmm. most famous lawyer in the country at the time, Melvin Belli, who wanted to go for everything, right? The boring defense was to go for the murder without malice. And you know what? In Texas at the time, no more than five years in prison for murder without malice. But that was a boring defense. Why pursue that when you can pursue when you can be the lawyer who got Jack Ruby off completely, gets not found, not guilty. And I think that's I think it was totally self-motivated by Belli to try to sort of, you know, go for the gusto. And it was a ridiculous it was a ridiculous defense in my view. I'm not, it's interesting because my co-author and I disagreed about the quality of the defense. And we kept going back and forth on language as to how we would characterize the defense, because, you know, I thought it was just absurd. And David thought that he had actually presented a pretty compelling
0: uh, case. I'm with you. I agree. It should have been, it should have been manslaughter and he would have had a much better result, but he was found guilty. So ultimately, you know, you can't argue with the result. And sentenced to death. Yeah, he was sentenced to death, which is, I mean, it's kind of interesting because you wouldn't, I'm not sure if I would have expected a Texas jury to sentence Jack Ruby to death for exactly killing the right. man who, right? You know what?
5: You're exactly, that is what the vast majority of journalists who are covering the trial thought. No one thought that they would sentence him to death. And the only thing I think that can explain that is that they were just, the defense was so ridiculous that they were just like, you know, that's it. This is, you know, this is this is effectively, you know, one person said it, that it felt like uh, they had sentenced the attorney um, rather than mm. Jack Ruby. But, you know, yeah, there was there was a lot of sympathy for Jack Ruby immediately right. after this happened. You know, people saying, yeah, you know, I can understand it. And and even for some of the mental health issues, it's but by the time this trial was over, this jury was just done with this defense and, and done with Jack Ruby. And, and as you point out, yeah, the case got overturned on appeal.
0: So Jack Ruby, yeah, he got a new trial. Um, but there's a reason Jack Ruby did not live to tell us all about, you know, to have it have his, his name cleared or go for the manslaughter defense and try to get an acquittal or at least a, a lesser sentence. He died like really soon thereafter.
5: Yeah, he, it was two months after he won the appeal that he died of cancer and that led to more conspiracy theories right i was going to say is um,
0: legit cancer are we sure yeah, it's cancer
5: yeah, yeah it was no it's legit cancer but think think about it this way right which is this idea that someone let's say poisons uh, ruby in prison you do it 3 years after the fact i mean you right, know it, right, it, right. It, because, it, i mean it's it's sort of just, by the way it's the same problem with the conspiracy theories about ruby killing oswald which is that the night that Oswald was was arrested, the day Oswald was arrested, Ruby was at the police station that night. He was there right next to Oswald at one point and doesn't kill him that night. The, the, the supposed hired assassin decides he's going to take a pass on killing him at the first opportunity he gets and instead allows him to spend two more days with the police, talking to the police. Mm. Um, and, and Ruby was at the press conference that night with the DA chiming up, Uh, Well, you know, correcting the DA on things about like what Cuban association Oswald had been affiliated with. That's the kind of guy Ruby was. He was like an attention seeker. He's not the guy you hire to be your, you know, your assassin.
0: Up next, we continue with Dan. But before we get to that, I just want to take this moment and give a special shout out to one of our listeners. His name, I believe, is Dave Sluzicek. It's S-K-L-U-Z-A-C-E-K. And Dave took the time to send us a a note asking if I would give him a personal phone call on his 50th birthday. So that's not going to happen, Dave. (laughs) However, you meant enough to me to give you this, this shout out in front of all of our many, many listeners, which I think is even better. He says he's not some crazy guy that sends a bunch of these notes out. He says he's a bit outside of his comfort zone writing this at all. This is how Dave describes himself. Normal guy, lovely wife, two kids, 13 and 15. I sell lumber for a living. And this September will be 20 years of marriage. Dave's facing the big 5-0, which I faced down this year as well. It's going to go fine. You're starting it off wisely by informing yourself with good info and spending your days with good people. Um, And I just want to tell you, I appreciate you listening to the show and I am happy, happy to wish you the happiest of birthdays. Lots of love. Who did they think hired him? The mob? Like uh, under the theories that Ruby was involved in all this and Ruby's hit on Oswald was orchestrated by a bigger organization. Is it the mob or is it, you know, there's so many theories about who is really behind the JFK assassination? So many
5: theories. There are so many theories. The the most prevalent one with regard to Ruby is the mob, right? Because he had mob ties, but they were like low level ties. He was kind of a joke, Ruby. Mm. And he had talked to a mobster. Um, you know, a few days before the assassination, um, having nothing to do with anything apart from the fact that Ruby was getting very upset that there were other strip clubs, he owned a strip club, and there were other strip clubs around him who were being allowed to forego some of the, the the licensing requirements. And as a result, they were doing better business than him. So he wanted to see if this mobster could help <laughs> with these issues with regard to the licensing on his clubs. Ah fact that ruby made a call and that ruby had been in cuba in 1959 i mean one of my one of the, the things that i think is so interesting is that ruby went to cuba in 1959 right and so there are questions about oh well, could the cubans have been behind it et cetera? right the problem is when ruby was in cuba like john f kennedy wasn't even like the most the leading candidate i mean you know to be president i mean <laughs> that the idea that that the conspiracy is going to begin before it's even looks like John Kennedy's gonna be president. Um, you know, the, the 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 most compelling conspiracy theory to me, just based on motivation, was this idea that the not the pro-Castro Cubans, but the anti-Castro Cubans who were furious at the Bay of Pigs, right? At JFK yep. abandoning them in the Bay of Pigs, that they were so angry that they tried to do this. Now, there's no proof that that's what happened, and and Oswald was actually a pro-Castro. Um, that's you know he spent enormous amounts of time trying to support Castro to go back to Cuba, etc. But you know the problem is that motivation does not make an assassination. You know people will cite the CIA. They'll say the CIA was angry at JFK about this or that. Okay, but they kill you're gonna are gonna take the leap now to they killed him and they orchestrated it and no one was able to figure it out and have definitive proof of it, et cetera. So, you know, the problem with the JFK assassination is that, and you know, and for me in terms of the, some of the the media I've been doing around this is that there are so many different theories, right? That someone will say to me, well, what about the, this person who said something, something, something? And I'll be like, wow, okay, well, you know, um, did that person testify? In front of the House um, Select Committee (laughs) in 1978, and they'd be like, um, you know, and it's like, you know, it's there's so much stuff out there. But to me, it's really simple: is that the timing, specifically with Ruby, putting aside Oswald for a moment. In addition to what I said to you about Friday and Sunday, was that on the day that Oswald is killed, there'd been an announcement that Oswald would be moved at 10 a.m. from the police station to the jail. All the media is there everyone's so crazy
0: right imagine them making that kind of specific i mean let's talk about endangering the guy
5: yeah well you know they they wanted to show you know it's interesting they wanted to show because oswald was sort of suggesting he was getting beaten up um, and they wanted to show that oswald was not you know in physical uh danger uh, by sort of parading him but you're right the, the biggest mistake they made was parading him. In, it, well, obviously, I mean, that's when Ruby shot him. Right. But Because of that um, video we played, he
0: walked right up to him. And it's not like, you know, he had to leap right. over turnstiles and pull an no. OJ. Well, bad right. comparison. But right. you know, right. He, right. he was rather right. easy execution. Right, right.
5: right. And, and no metal detectors when they're getting, you know, Ruby had kind of, Ruby was always this guy who was kind of hanging out with the media, hanging out with the police, etc. But 10 a.m., the announcement's there. Everyone's, everyone's waiting for the move. Ruby's still like getting ready that morning. It's, Ruby doesn't come to this area until an hour and 15 minutes later when there's a Western Union, which happens to be basically, you know, within a block of the police station, 100 wow. yards. And he's going there because a woman who worked at his club was begging him to send her $25 because she's like, I need it for rent. I need it for rent. So he goes to the Western Union at 11.17. It's now an hour and 17 minutes after Oswald is supposed to be moved. He gets the receipt for the Western, he, he saunters over to the police station, walks in, a, a police car is driving out, he walks into the garage. It's literally a minute to 30 seconds before Oswald ends up being brought out. If Oswald had not asked to put on a sweater, Ruby probably would have missed him. And the yeah. other thing is that Ruby was obsessed in a sort of odd way with his dogs, meaning he would refer to them as oh, right. his children and one of his dogs as his, as his wife, um, because he didn't have a wife, he didn't have. <laughs> Um kids, etc. I, I
0: heard she was a real bitch.
5: Yeah. <laughs> oh. Sorry. Did you prepare <laughs> that one? That, oh, no. You just that was off
0: the cuff. They just come to me, Dan. They just That was good.
5: Me. That was that was good Off you. the cuff. Megan Kelly, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, so
0: <laughs>
5: so <laughs> the dog's name was Sheba, and he had left the dog in the car when he went to the Western Union. He never would have left. Anyone who knows Ruby says he never would have left the dog in the car if he'd been planning to go shoot Oswald um, and knowing he'd be arrested. It's just it's another like the, the timing issues are the other are big ones. Right. Which is that it if really wanted does to kill seem
0: him. like it was an uncontrollable impulse. Right. Yes. What movie was that from where he just he, he killed him on an impulse on a whim?
5: Yep. Yep. It was it was a whim. It was. And he thought he would be kind of a hero. I mean, you know, Ruby was a kind of, you know, was like a wannabe tough guy. He was the guy. He served as a bouncer at his own club. He'd get in fights a lot. He would always be. Was he a hero?
0: I I didn't. I don't know what the media coverage of him was like. Because people, some were mad that he killed the main piece of evidence on, on what was behind the JFK assassination, which was the man who did it, Oswald. But was he a hero? How did the press treat Jack Ruby? So he was. Not treated as a
5: hero, um, but there was definitely a lot of sympathy for him in Dallas, which is why, if you know, and they and they would do studies, et cetera, too, about you know what the the polling was of of people in Dallas at the time, and you know he definitely had people not who you know because I think people were you know angry that now the the questions about exactly what happened and how it happened went to the grave with oswald um but there was again this idea that that he could have easily gotten this manslaughter conviction this murder without malice um because there was generally i don't want to say it was an understanding but the country you know it's interesting we cite this in the book there's another case that happened um on the same day that ruby shot uh, Oswald, where a guy was comes into his house, <clears throat> and I think it's his stepfather starts mocking Kennedy, watching the funeral proceeding. the 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 son goes and stabs him and kills him, mm. and um, uh, two months later, the judge uh, lets him off with no no jail time because the wow. country was mourning. Um, so my point is just that there was an understanding of it which is why people were not
0: in their right place. emotionally. Yeah. Right.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Um... Well,
0: I love what you're doing. There's so many juicy trials like to get your, to get your arms around and to get into. And they do tell us, I mean, I loved the Adams one because it really told a lot about one of our founding fathers and it was a juicy legal case as well. Um, But you do a great job of it because you spin a mystery. I think this one's actually perfectly timed for the beach and the summer where you want something, I don't know, a little, a little sexy. Forgive me, um, but also that you could learn a little bit about history through. And so, yeah. you guys, you, you nailed it. I think this is a fascinating story, and you, uh, I will forgive you for our our argument about the Wuhan lab because I really like. Well, this I
5: book. don't even know that we're arguing. You know about the Wuhan lab. It's that no, we're not arguing.
0: We we argued and I won.
5: <laughs> well, you know we're because you you have because you have <laughs> determined um, the. Uh, the definitive, what do we call the most likely theory? Yes, the most likely. Yes. Right. And I am saying that um, we are both critical of the media for not taking this seriously. And I'm saying that based on what I have seen, that it is not as definitive as that, that it is the leading theory. But again, I also didn't see this article this morning. Um, yeah, you guys should have sent that to me. Said, we're going to be asking you about this Wall Street Journal article. Sorry right. about that. Yeah, I just no, assumed right.
0: you read the, the journal and the, yeah, the Times.
5: Yeah, no, but, you know, every, <laughs> I wish I could read everything, thing. you know, every morning. But, um,
0: You're busy being, writing about Kennedy's Avenger and and being Ruby's Avenger. Not really. You're not on his side, but you do tell no. a fascinating tale. Dan Abrams, it's always a pleasure.
5: Megan Kelly, thank
0: you for having me. I appreciate it. And don't forget to tune in to the show on Friday because we're going to go neck deep into COVID uh, again. The, the Those shows that we've been doing have been very well received, and we've been trying to keep the information straight and real for you. Had a lot of follow up questions actually in our um, Apple you know reviews where you can post a comment with people asking more questions. So I'm going to try to get after some of those, in particular on the vaccines. But we want to get into this genetic footprint and the and the CGG the double CGG and how it's never never before been seen naturally. Come on. The, the jig is up, you know, it's we know what happened now, what's going to happen next? That's the real question. Where's the accountability? What are we going to do about it? Uh, anyway, we'll get into all that. You can be reminded of, of that show without having to worry about it. If you just go subscribe to the show now on Apple and give me five stars, if you would be so kind. A nice review would be lovely. I am still reading all of them, notwithstanding your doubts. <laughs> people doubt me, but I do. I read them. And can I tell you something? This is the nicest review I've seen in so long. It was the sweetest thing. I don't normally just sit here and read nice reviews about myself on this show, but I got to tell you, this one struck a chord. It was from somebody, um, I have it here, named Modern? Uh, No, Moderate-ish. Moderate-ish. And the header was Truth And he or she wrote, Megan has opened my eyes to a whole room of truth tellers. Okay, love that. She is the North Star on a moonless night. So grateful I found her show. Oh, thank you so much. Because can I tell you, that's how I see my guests, you know, that that they're all stars on a moonless night. That's that's what the media landscape is right now. And I am honored that you are feeling that way about the program. Uh, I feel like we're all in this together and we, we will shine a light and screw those others who are trying to keep us mad and in the darkness. Lots of love. <laughs> See you Friday. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The Megan Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures.